You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. This episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast is brought to you by Codify, a California-based B Corp that wants you to get involved and make archaeology more awesome. Visit ideas.codify.com and add your thoughts about improving public archaeology. Let us know if you're interested in volunteer or internship opportunities, share ideas for community experiences, or anything else that you can dream of. That's ideas.codify.com. I hope you enjoy the special episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Archaeological Podcasting Network. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to the Nasty Women in Archaeology podcast. I'm Emily Long, and I have Chelsea Slotten and Sarah Head with me today. On this episode, we're getting into the wonderful world of the 2016 presidential election. We're going to talk about the language being used to describe women and Clinton as a presidential candidate, and how this language is filtering into our lives as archaeologists, like the joking about Trump's rhetoric about women in the field and the impact that may be having on women working in the field. Uh, as well as the potential archaeological ramifications of either candidate winning the presidency. Thanks so much for being with me today. So, to get us started, what are your thoughts about this election? Oh. <laughs> I know, it's a loaded question. Chelsea, <laughs> would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I look at this election and I, I just shake my head and I really can't believe that it's 2016 and that this is uh this is what's happening. I mean, we have on the one hand a, a woman who is one of, if not the most experienced presidential candidate of the the modern era, uh, going up against as a wonderful tweet that I saw from uh, a Scottish individual, uh, an orange orangutan, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and and the fact that the the two candidates are being given, e- I mean, equal equal weight and unequal airtime. To be completely honest, Trump has gotten so much free airtime. Oh God! Um, and and it's concerning not just because who's going to win the election and where are we going to be in, you know, a, a couple months um, with the inauguration, but also the the damage that the rhetoric that is being used by the Trump campaign that normalizes sexual assault and normalizes rape culture and normalizes the uh, re- reduction of women as as human beings um, and, you know, and reduces them to, uh, as, as Trump has de- described his own daughter, a piece of ass, even if he doesn't win the election, which I'm going to come out right out and say I really hope that that's not the case. Oh, my God, uh, he, <laughs> scares the daylights out of me the the fact that we have given a platform for him to to speak from for so long you know and the and the individuals who listen to that that rhetoric um you know i wonder what the long long-term impacts of that are going to be of the, the people who are our children or teenagers today who came of age when when this was happening and and how that will affect their de- development, and then, I mean, from an, an archaeological point of view and a, a cultural respect, uh, respects for, for people of, of other cultures, of other ethnicities, of other backgrounds, um, the interest in understanding them, and we as archaeologists are interested in understanding other cultures. Um, Trump wants to build a wall. He doesn't want to understand anyone. He doesn't want to know who they are. He doesn't seem to want to view them as, as human or as worthy as, as he is. Um, you know, and it, and it just seems very, his, his positions on, on everything just seem very antithetical to the, the culture of, of understanding and curiosity and acceptance, um, that I see so much in archaeology. And that also scares me because I'm all about acceptance and curiosity and tolerance. Um, he doesn't seem to have many of those. And I am clearly, uh, <clears throat> very politically, uh, I'm very much on one side of the, the political spectrum. 
<laughs> I don't think you're alone in the, in the, those those words that it's incredibly troubling. And you're right. I mean, with archaeology and anthropology being a study of people, I mean, for one thing we can say about the election, at least it has been an interesting study in the extreme right. <laughs> that that That's a positive in a way. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I need to go to a Trump rally with a notebook and be like, yes, this is them in their natural habitat. Right. See how they hold their signs. <laughs> uh, the ethnographic explanation for this sort of behavior is... A lack of reading and understanding and tolerance. <laughs> well, you know, actually, as as much as I enjoy making fun of that, um, I was just <laughs> listening to, I listen to a lot of NPR <coughs> because I am a, a lefty left liberal. And one of the shows that I really enjoy listening to is called On the Media. And what they do is they examine the media and the media's handling of certain things. And the most recent episode, I think, was called um, Bad Decision Making or something like that. And... They were specifically covering how the media has covered Mr. Trump and not him particularly, but the people that are thought to be his uh, his base. And what has come out is that the media has overrepresented what is called the, the white working class and underrepresented the people who are actually Donald Trump's base, which are wealthy, well-educated white Americans, mostly male, who make more than 72000 in a year. Mm-hmm. So his his base is not really the white working class. Mm-hmm. Those people fall very squarely into the, the Hillary camp and into the libertarian camp. Um, so they're, they may at some point have been Republicans. They may still be Republicans, but they are not his supporters. Um, so even though these people may traditionally fall into the conservative camp, they are these people that you see on television who are, you know, screaming racial epitaphs and flying the, the Confederate flag. These are those one-offs that the media has found. And I'm sure there's more than just one of them, obviously. But basically what the media has been doing is the, the dumb shit that they always do, where they find the loudest, most obnoxious person, and that's the person they talk to, while ignoring everyone else in the room. And so at this point, we all have this image of, you know, that guy wearing the Make America Great ball cap, punching that black protester in the face as he's being escorted out of a Trump rally. And that's what we think all Trump supporters are like. And that guy actually isn't actual typical Trump supporter. The typical Trump supporter is a a guy who's living the life, has lots of cars, lots of money, and a, a decent education, like a, a good education, who is just quietly funneling money into the political system and hoping to get what he put into it out. Um, and I think that creates a very dangerous image because, mm-hmm. I mean, we think educated people are all going to vote sanely. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm... Obviously, you would obviously I, I don't like Trump, so obviously I think all people should be like me. Um, but I like to think that someone who is educated and who has gone through a college education and, and been exposed to other cultures while in college, I mean, I think it's unavoidable unless you go to one of these very specialized colleges that only cater to... Anyway, my, my point is... The dangers that we're, the danger here is that the media has created a false narrative that we have all bought into because we have no other way of knowing. Mm-hmm. The only way that we would know what these true statistics for Trump are is if you go to the exit polling data for the primary and if you look at the polling data itself for um, all of the, the popularity polls that come out and you actually look at the raw data. And that's where you start seeing who the typical Trump supporter is and who the typical Clinton supporter is. And that's where you start seeing the really scary stuff like if only white men voted in this election, if like some some weird thing happened and only white men voted, Trump would win the election. The same thing is true as if only white women voted. Like if only white women voted in this country, Donald Trump would still win the election. The trouble, it is bizarre. Those numbers don't start to change until you, until you start factoring in minority women who will who vote pretty much. As far as the data that I've seen, 
for Hillary Clinton. So, so I also think it's really important. I mean, as we're talking about Trump's followers, and it is, it is oh so easy to roll your eyes and go, but why? It's tempting, you know. That, but back on the the bandwagon of understanding and tolerance, um, <laughs> there are reasons that that people like him, and whether it is upper class white individuals who see i mean there's there's that old um quote i'm sorry it's a little disjointed but that when steps are made towards equality those who have privilege feel like they are being uh discriminated against you know if if only three people are allowed in the square because they have special trait x and then all of a sudden all of the people are allowed into the square because we decide that we want equality those three people who used to have uh, exclusive right to to space, you know, the square are going to feel like something has been taken away from them because they no longer have exclusive right to the to the square. Um, and I realize that that's a very generic analogy. That's um, oh, a good one, though. But you know, a lot of the people who who are supporting him may may feel like strides towards equality are personally diminishing their their lifestyle or. Um, you know, you do get people who are genuinely fed up with what is going on in in the country and and how things are are heading. Um, and if if we want to learn something from this election, and if we want to do better in the future, we can't roll our eyes and say, "Well, how could you vote for that?" Um, you know, we we need to understand where they're coming from and, and address those issues as well. Um, you know, and, and that's hard to do. I mean, I, um, <clears throat> one of my dear friends, her husband is threatening to vote Trump because he's an anarchist and he thinks it would be funny. Aww. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and, and that guy you just slap. I'm sorry. Exactly. That's right. That's you know, and, and, and how do you that's, understand that? That's not a that? reason to vote for somebody. No, not at all. But, but how do you understand that and how do you deal with that? And it is difficult, um, and, and tempting not to, but if you don't learn from, from history's mistakes, you're bound to repeat them. Um, and, to build off of that, Chelsea, I mean, I, I've been reading a bunch of articles on how, yes, in a way, this election is unprecedented, but in other ways it isn't. And that if you look throughout history, um, you'll have these charismatic individuals <laughs> rise to the forefront after um, major changes in um, equality. Uh, I mean, just look at the civil rights movement and some of the politicians that came out of that trying to push things back to how it was and oh wasn't that a better time even though it wasn't um and one of the articles i was looking at just kept saying this is cyclical we keep seeing this again and again um and they had uh, three points that for the type of people who um are supporting individuals like Trump, um, that they are typically only looking at the present and not really focusing much on the past or the future, that they're worried about their present, like, oh my gosh, my I'm my status, my stuff, it's going to change. Um, also, they're not looking uh, around them and thinking of things globally and how things can affect each other um, and that uh, global connection on, well, if Trump is elected, what's going to happen internationally? And um, and third, uh, that a lot of the, these folks, they don't want to hear opposing views and they don't want to challenge um, their views. Um, and so I think, Chelsea, like you're saying, it, it's hard to try to understand where they're coming from. But if you think about those three factors, it's like, well, if they're closing themselves off completely and going, la, 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 I don't want to hear anything else. It's kind of like, what are you supposed to do? So I, I, I'm guessing for the future and looking at um, how can we teach future kids about this election, ground them more in history, give a better history to show this keeps happening. How can we prevent it? Well, and I think there's a danger. As much as I agree, uh, as long as as much as I agree with the repeating nature of this, mm-hmm. I think there is a danger in saying that because this election is unprecedented on certain levels that should be addressed. Exactly. Uh, and I think when, and it's not that I think people are being dismissive. The people that are saying this, oh, this is just a repeating. This repeats. We've seen this before. We haven't, 
we've seen similar situations, mm -hmm. but this is not the same thing, and it shouldn't be dismissed as the same thing. And I'm not saying that people are being dismissive, mm -hmm. but other people who hear that rhetoric do dismiss it. Oh, well, it's happened before in the past. I mean, we didn't blow the world up then. Why should we worry about it now? It's the same kind of arguments that they use against global warming, you know? Mm -hmm. Because... Well, but yeah, because it's like, oh, the weather. This, we've never seen weather like this before. Well, except for that one time back in 1894 when this one thing happened. Oh, okay. Well, the world didn't blow up then, so I guess we'll be fine now. Well, yeah, but now the ice caps are melting, so... <laughs> there, there's you know? a difference between a freak accident happening once and it becoming a pattern. Right, exactly. And there is a pattern. I'm not saying there's not. And you are right. These kind of cult personalities do pop up after long periods of change have occurred. Mm -hmm. But the problem with Mr. T is his own party doesn't want anything to do with him. That's how freaking out mm -hmm. there he is. Like, they're jumping ship like rats. That should be our first sign that this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. Like, Republicans will go down with a ship. They, they will go down singing the national anthem. They're not going down with this one. And that should be a really big wake-up sign for a lot of people. It is also worth noting that of all of the individuals who have previously held the office that he is currently running for, who actually have experience uh, of, of what it takes to be president of the United States, and, and there aren't very many of them, none of them are supporting him. In fact, they have all come out and said emphatically that he does not have the, the temperament or the experience to be the president of the United States of America. And that's, that is significant. Mm -hmm. uh, worth, worth noting. Yeah. Regardless of their parties, um, Democratic, Republican, and, and they've held that office. They know what it takes. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Welcome back. We're now going to get into the rhetoric Trump has been using and how it's been filtering into our daily lives, particularly for me in the field. Um, I, it's really getting to me personally that I've got a wonderful crew, great guys, people I would never expect to say anything or repeat the type of things Trump has said in a serious way. The problem is, because it's so ridiculous, they're repeating it as a joke. But after a while, hearing, you know, Trump that bitch, and then you hear, well, ha ha ha, well then, record that bitch. And that kind of language, it's exhausting. And I'm the only woman on the crew, and it's, I don't know, I don't even know the best way to, to describe it. It's just... It almost feels insulting, even though I know it's not directed at me. I know it's not what they mean. It's just repeating Trump's words validates them in a way. Or just, it, I don't know, it, it, it does. bothers me. It does, and it should bother you. It does validate his words. It, it, it should bother you. It should bother any woman. And I have the same problem with Bill Maher, which is a lot of the reason why I don't like watching him, and I don't. Just because you're couching something as a joke does not mean that it is acceptable or appropriate. And I get it that, you know, maybe they're trying to show solidarity in that, you know, they think the things that Trump says are ridiculous. And so they're trying to make a joke of it to make fun of him. Mm -hmm. But the problem is the words themselves and the sentiment behind those words don't go away just because you're making a joke. Mm -hmm. You're still using the term bitch in a derogatory way. You're still using it as a, an objectification term. It's still used primarily to describe women. So you're still using it as a way of uh, showing that something that you're calling a bitch is not as valuable. And any of the other things that he says, 
especially things directed at like minorities Mm -hmm. it's not funny it's it shouldn't be funny we shouldn't be using them as field jokes Mm -hmm. i mean we've got enough crass jokes out in the field do we really need to be adding this to the repertoire and i maybe perhaps part of it is they don't realize there's that barrier where that they don't realize as women a lot of times we hear that in a serious yeah. way. We yeah, are this, the things. language that they're using is a joke. And I mean, I would sit them down and talk to them like this. I mean, yeah, you're going to get the mommy look, but whatever. They need to hear this shit. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that we put up with. It's calling your your stadia rod, you know, the bitch <laughs> isn't funny to me. I get called a bitch for no fucking reason. But I like I tried to explain this to my boyfriend the other day, and I love this. I love my boyfriend, and he would never do this to somebody. But I can literally walk down the sidewalk of a street doing nothing, paying attention to no one, and get called a bitch for existing. So saying things like Trump that bitch or, you know, record that bitch or whatever the hell isn't funny to me. I don't even like using the B word in a positive way. I don't, I'm not part of the take it back group. You know, I'm, I'm not cool with the word. Because so as I, as if normalizing what Trump It normalizes the word. And I don't want that word normalized. And I don't want Trump's rhetoric normalized. Anyway. I mean, it, it does normalize it. The other thing, um, I mean, from a, oh, we're just joking about a perspective, like, Two, as as much as people joke about cliches being cliches, they're also cliches for a reason. And there is that cliche of many a serious thing is said in jest. Right. Um, you know, and 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 great guys or not, and I'm sure they are because I trust your judgment about human <laughs> beings. Um, right. there are also people who are joking about things, uh, th- this thing in particular, and are do actually mean it in a in a serious way and think that it is now appropriate to to joke about it. Um, but I also worry about, I've, I've heard some people, um, using, using similar language and saying, oh, like, we're just joking about it now, but like when the election's over, it's not going to be timely anymore. Uh, you know, it is, it is a joke at a specific moment in time. Um, and I, I wonder about whether or not that's true. If you get so used to saying something, you know, and, and for example, um, this is, I'm sure we all know lots of people in the field have terrible potty mouths, um, <laughs> yes. myself included. <laughs> I can um, <clears throat> curse like a sailor when necessary, and you go out in the field for two months and maybe you don't see anyone who's not an archaeologist, and then you come back in and realize that your vocabulary is a low, whole lot more F-bombs in it than it used to. <laughs> um, you know, and, and yes, you can renormalize to to cleaning up your language and being in um, you know more professional environment and things. Um, but but it takes time to adjust. And there are also some people who, who who never do and just keep going on with that. And, you know, if it goes beyond whatever is supposedly timely and funny and just becomes part of part of the norm, there will be someone who hears that um, that, that isn't even, uh, you know, a female who doesn't see it as a joke, but. But some guy who hears you and says, oh, great, this this enforces the misogynistic leanings that I have, not realizing that you might be trying to make a joke or um, something else. So it just has these really far-reaching consequences. Well, and there's some people that try it on. They, they use the joke as a way of trying language on. Like, oh, well, I made, I made this joke. Everybody laughed. Nobody seems offended. Therefore, it must be okay. Or oh, I got away with it this time, which means I can probably get away with saying it the next time. They mean it. Yeah. They're just using the cover of a joke as a way to have an out if you don't laugh, you know? And and then they can turn it on you. Oh, well, it was a joke. God, you could laugh. No, I'm not going to laugh at your joke. I don't have to explain to you why I don't think your dumb joke is funny. You need to explain to me why you think it is. Why is it funny to call me a bitch? Why is it funny to infer that you can walk around and grab me for no freaking reason because you think you should be able to. That's not funny. Mm-hmm. And it makes me seriously question you that you think that it is. And, and then you get behavior like Chelsea had to put up with at her party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, backstory, since I don't believe this was recorded, I was at a... Okay. I was at a Halloween event where um, someone decided that it was appropriate to basically hit on all the women and when someone said no just like move on to the next one and then when everyone said no go back around to the beginning again um you know and if you're 
we were a whole bunch of us were dancing in a in a living room, um, you know, and I suppose it was totally appropriate to come up behind many women and start grinding on them and and grabbing breasts and grabbing vaginas um, willy nilly, which is not okay. In case no. anyone is wondering, not okay <laughs> ever. Right. So like (laughs) I have very recently dealt with the real world consequences of the normalization of some of Trump's language. Yeah. And it's sickening. It is. Well, and people think that it's just a people shrug it off because they're like, oh, well, I'm an adult. Blah blah blah. It's very true. That's, you know, this has been going on for a year now. I don't think people understand how long we've been having to put up with Mr. Trump. His language is affecting the kids that I teach. Like, I have to put up with things that Donald Trump has said coming out of the mouths of kids ranging in grades from three to six. And I'm just like, what do you, what do, you do when a 12-year-old says something that Trump has said? Like, I don't have to play with him. He's not the right race. Oh what? God. You don't get an out just because you don't like somebody and you don't get to say things that you heard on television as an excuse to get out of things. But that's the kind of world that these, I mean, this is a year of these kids' lives, and they're going to take this forward with them, and they're going to go to college, they're going to go to high school and the next grade with this mentality that it's okay to say and do certain things if you're white and wealthy and really great and do it in a bigly way, and, you know, and this is affecting things. I do wonder, uh, looking back, I mean, I've, I've read um, on a, and, and heard on NPR past examples of uh, political ads. Um, I think there was a great one where um, Thomas Jefferson was saying John Adams was a hermaphrodite or something yeah. along those lines. I mean, which is, looking back, hilarious. I'm sure at the time, incredibly damaging and angering. So I'm wondering if there's a precedence for this type of language, but it's hard to imagine, I mean, even 10 years ago in a presidential election, this type of rhetoric that Trump is using against Hillary Clinton um, being used towards another another presidential candidate, like the lack of respect, the lack of just treating her like a, a normal human being. Um it's just the, utterly bizarre to me. And I think you make a wonderful point, Sarah, that this is going to affect kids. It's going to affect um, the nation's outlook, I think, in, yeah. in many respects. Um, and the way that other nations see us. Yes. Since our news media has, has decided that Trump is the story of the century, that's all that's leaving this nation as far as news. And so other countries see him get up on a stage and go, we're going to start charging our allies for upholding the treaties that we signed because we're not making any money off of it. They get worried. Mm-hmm. And, and and just rightfully so. Right. No, they should be worried. But, you know, it's like you the, what they don't show or what they don't show enough is Clinton going, no, he's crazy. Mm-hmm. We're not going to not uphold our treaties and we're not going to charge our allies money to do the things we said we were going to do. That part doesn't get out there. None of the rhetoric, none of the counters that Clinton puts out there to to deal with the crap that comes out of Trump's mouth, none of that gets out there. So all we hear is crazy man screaming at the void, crazy man screaming at a crowd full of other crazy people, crazy man saying something derogatory about some other group that isn't his, and you never hear rational woman explaining why crazy guy is wrong, rational woman explaining why we're going to continue doing the things we said we're going to do, rational woman explaining why we can't do the things that the crazy man thinks that we can do because he's nuts. You don't see any of that. And I think that is, I think that is a, a an example of sexism, mm-hmm. because I don't think she's getting the coverage she should be getting simply because she's female. Um, the media has created a narrative, and you guys don't have to agree with me on this. I know, I know most people don't, but the media has created a narrative about Hillary Clinton, and it is the narrative that they have decided is the story that they will tell about Clinton, no matter what. And it's not a positive narrative because the media has never gotten along with Hillary Clinton. And so they go out of their way to paint her in the most negative light they can. Fortunately, they have Donald Trump to distract them right now, or else I think you'd see a whole lot more negative press 
towards Hillary Clinton over stupid things that have no bearing on her ability to be president of the United States. That's a really good point. Um, out of curiosity, did uh, either of you, both of you, uh, watch the debates? Oh, I, I saw the, the first and second one um, and legitimately could not bring myself to watch the third one. But Sarah, I greatly appreciated your live tweets. They were hilarious. I, I live tweeted all three of them. And much like Chelsea, I got through... The first one was just hilarious. I'm sorry. I enjoyed that one the most. Um, the second one was probably the closest we were ever going to get to an actual presidential debate between these two. Um, I had to bring myself mentally to the table to watch the third one. And I could tell that even just by the tweets that I did from the third one, I was done. Um, it, was, it, it was difficult to watch. It was probably the worst one out of all three of them. And it was the worst one because it, it was unnecessary. Um, early voting had already started. So in general, that debate was not necessary. It did nothing. Um, and this is where we get the nasty, such a nasty woman. Who the hell thinks that it's okay to say something like that out loud while your opponent is talking at a freaking debate? Seriously? <laughs> anyway. There was a lot of shocking <laughs> There were a lot of moments like that. <laughs> yeah. I was just... I don't know about you. I was just blown away by the incredibly aggressive behavior by Trump and that even though the moderators tried to see, try to pull him back a little bit, I don't think there was enough to try to create a safe and, you know, rational, intellectual atmosphere for a presidential debate. And it bothered me that there was almost like this hope that he would go on the attack. Because... We have gotten used to TV. watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's ta it's TV. We weren't watching debates. We were watching wrestling matches. Exactly. And it was like dangling bait above a shark pit. And Trump was the shark. Clinton was the bait. And he went for it every freaking time. Mm -hmm. She, I'm really disappointed that Clinton has to run against a person like Trump. Because, as Chelsea pointed out at the beginning of this, she is probably the most qualified person to ever run for this office. And she has to run against Trump. We, we can't see her demonstrate her skills because she can't. She has to stand there and smile. She has to stand there and pretend like she's okay with the fact that he is threatening her that he is degrading her, that he is talking over her and trying to bully his way through her time to speak. And she has to act like she's okay with all of that because she's a woman. And I can guarantee that all three of us have experienced that exact same problem at some point, either while we were working towards our degrees or when we've worked in the field. You know, we all know exactly what's going on because we've all had to put up with it. Exactly. I think all of that is is true with the the farce of the debates and the fact that Clinton has not been able to showcase her um her skills and her knowledge and her experience. Um and and I have to say I and I did not watch the, the third debate and I know that the moderators had a hard time reining Donald Trump in. Uh but I have to say props to them for trying because it doesn't <laughs> take instruction or criticism well um and and given such given such a task i'm not sure that anyone could have really been successful at it so but i mean they tried and i i don't know that it how much better it could have been um but one thing that has has struck my mind often over the, the course of this election and if you'll excuse my nerdy uh wonderful amazing uh, musical theater reference <laughs> um Hamilton right which everybody knows about because it's this amazing show if um, you have not listened to it get the soundtrack now and be prepared to cry <laughs> yes it's it's sad at some parts uh no spoilers but um <laughs> spoilers he dies at the end <laughs> surprise <laughs> I mean we <laughs> talk about that in the first song anyways um sorry no it's it's fine I love that soundtrack um I think that there are, are two really profound moments um, in, in that show, one of which is is the line, immigrants, we get the job done, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a very poignant 
uh, criticism uh, from Lin Emanuel Miranda, whose whose father I believe was an an immigrant. Um, you know about the fact that our country and our our success and the fact that we are a free nation no longer under British rule um, has nothing to do with building walls. Um, and and the other song that I find uh, or the refrain that is re- repeated often in the course of the musical is um, history has its eyes on you. And I really wonder moving forward 20, 50, 100, 300 years from now, you know, assuming that we're all still on this planet, um, you never know. Meteors wiped out the dinosaurs. Sure. <laughs> um, but what what people are going to think, no matter how this election turns out, we are living in a historic period. I mean, we had the first African-American president. We have the first female to win a major party uh, nomination. We may very well have the, the first female president. And, and just how people are going to look back and say, how was that accepted? How did no one step in and say say no, or at least not the people in, in positions powerful enough to, to do that. How did they let it get b- that bad? Why yeah. did it take a tape of Trump talking about grabbing some woman's pussy against her wishes? And why does everyone think the most offensive part of that video is the fact that he says pussy? It's like, right? yeah. who gives a crap that he said pussy? It's that he was like, oh, I can just grab their their crotches and their boobs and I can just start kissing them anytime I want because I'm rich, bitch. And that's that's the part that's offensive. That's the part that's disgusting and terrifying to hear that from a man who could be elected. It's and like, the fact that he is oblivious in this this the wrong. second it's the second debate. That was the first question he was asked. I forget the guy's name. There was the moderator. He goes, you do realize. Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper says, you do realize you described sexual assault and you bragged about sexual assaulting women. And Trump goes, no, I didn't. He's he's a kindergartner who got stuck with his hand in the cookie jar and is going to lie until he's blue in the face because he knows he did something wrong. I don't think he was lying. I honest to God don't think he understands that what he did was describe sexual assault. On that note, we need to take a break. This is Christopher Sims, host of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. It's a show geared for early career archaeologists where I bring interviews and casual panel discussions about the challenges and opportunities that many archaeologists encounter starting off. So, if you're still in school, thinking about going back, just getting started, or want to take the next step, you'll find what you need to go dig a hole. Tune in every other week on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Back? We're not going to get into the potential archaeological ramifications of either candidate being elected. Now, that being said, we did try to find something archaeologically related with Hillary Clinton, and really nothing came up. Uh, so, trying to be fair politically um, didn't really work out. However, we did find stuff on Trump, um, particularly about the building of his wall, wall that he loves so much. Um, found an article discussing how, if this wall were built, how it could destroy thousands of sites. Now, Sarah or Chelsea, would you like to get into this topic? Sure. Um, so it was, um, I believe it was Chris, Dr. Christina Kilgrove, who, who does actually some really interesting uh, reviews of articles, um, journal articles for Forbes, but she wrote a, a piece on how Trump's wall would... Uh, destroy lots and lots of archaeological sites. The the conservative number that that she came up with, um, which she and this is a hypothetical, uh, ma- um, hypothetical math math that if the the proposed border was to run around two thousand miles and would be uh, eight feet thick, that depending on the the location of the wall, um, and obviously archaeological site density varies depending on on where you're at, but probably get somewhere around 
126 prehistoric archaeological sites um, would, would be destroyed. She also is quick to point out that that estimate is, is a very low estimate. It doesn't include historic sites. It doesn't include artifact scatter um, with, in relation to the site density, um, et cetera. So that, that number can very quickly go up um, and in fairly significant numbers. Um, and that is also not taking into account the, the infrastructure that would have to be completed to get to the wall, um, to have trucks get there. The, the need for roads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, of history that we're, we're losing. I do want to get to the, the loophole. Um, Sorry. Or if one of you wants to, to jump in on that, that's fine. Um, I think it is important to, to note, however, that there are some people who say, oh, like, construction can be good for archaeology because when construction and archaeology happens, uh, they could find sites and then we have to, you know, have an archaeological team come in and and work on this site. Um, I think many of us know that the the reality can be very different from this theoretical boon. Um, you know, archaeologists don't have enough time or enough money to to study the artifacts and the architectural features. Uh, you also have crews, um, you know, construction crews who might not recognize what an archaeological site is, and and you know, bulldoze through it because they don't have archaeological training. Uh, which is understandable because it is unreasonable to expect someone to be able to to do something for which they have no training. Um, but the the potential loss of archaeological data is immense. And uh, for those who are not familiar with that part of the country, it is insanely archaeologically rich. Um, there are areas that could just be a cultural landscape, meaning you can't walk several meters, several feet, without stumbling across some pottery, um, a stone tool, uh, irrigation systems that were created a thousand years ago. Um, so the idea of even putting one bulldozer in there would create huge ramifications for that archaeological site or that entire area. Well, and how much of that is going to cross tribal lands as well? I mean, these are these are supposedly sovereign areas that we don't have the technically the right to just walk in on. Not that that has stopped us in the past, but my point being, um, we're looking in theory. We we as archaeologists would be required to make note of that and the tribes would hypothetically have the right to say no. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's that to consider as well. Exactly. There's actually, the um, article did mention, there are cases of uh, construction for uh, different aspects of border border patrol. I honestly don't know uh, specifically for what, if there were guard towers, um, parts of fences, or so forth, um, road systems. Um, areas in which uh, the archaeological sites were completely destroyed. Um, and this was on Paiute and uh, Tohono O'odham land. Um, these uh, The sites were Hohokam archaeological sites. So yeah, despite these areas being sovereign nations um, where compliance should happen, it didn't, and these sites were destroyed despite cultural resource management laws. And, and some of that is in the in the hearing that Christina discusses in in two thousand eight. Um, she says that the the chairman of the Tohono O'odham Nation um, testified in in this hearing that the Department of Homeland Security allows archaeological resources to be to be damaged and that they can waive laws that are supposed to protect cultural heritage. And, I mean, Trump is talking about this wall in a, in a Homeland Security uh, defense kind of way. So, you know, what are the, the risks that no archaeology would would be done? I mean, we as a, as a country don't have a, a great track record of um, necessarily in, engaging super conservatively with defense mechanisms. I mean, we spend more money than, you know, the next 10, 12 countries in the whole world combined on, on our defense. Um, when we when we talk about security and, and defense, people tend to, to perk up and um, approve things in the name of safety. But really, how much safety is it getting us? Um, right. 
and and could things get pushed through simply because they have you know homeland security or defense attached to them right and i mean we're just talking about the archaeological ramifications of this hypothetical wall we're not looking at the actual like uh, amounts of money that it would take and the materials that it would take. And I mean, the amounts of stuff that it would take to get this wall built doesn't exist. Like, we're talking numbers that are mythical. So the chances of this wall getting built are slim to none. But people really want this wall because they don't understand all of the, the problems that it's going to cause and all they hear, like Chelsea said. They hear, oh, it will make you safer. It won't. It's not going to make you any safer. All it's going to do is tear up the land and destroy archaeology, destroy history, trounce its way through Native American lands, and it's not going to get us anything. It might get politicians some points. Yeah, okay. Beyond that. (laughs) True. You know, if that's what you're concerned with. (laughs) And as a politician, I'm sure it is. (laughs) But, yeah, it's... The the wall, and I know that, like, Clinton has spoken out against the wall, not for any other reason than it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like, she's not ever come out and said, this particular aspect of the wall is ridiculous, and this particular aspect of the wall is ridiculous. She's never bothered to break it down, because for her, it's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And and I think for a lot of people that understand what's going to go into, what would have to go into building this wall... It's very easy for us to go, oh, it's just ridiculous. But I think it's important to do what Emily and Chelsea are doing right now and like tearing down aspects of why it's ridiculous so that people can hear that and understand. I understand you're scared and you want a wall because you think that something bad's going to happen. You think drug dealers with calves the size of cantaloupes are going to run up into your yard and, you know, attack you. But that wall isn't going to stop that, you know. And, and other uh, aspects of the potential archaeological ramifications. Um, it's interesting. I've heard from a number of archaeologists who said jokingly, but I'm sure there's some underlying real concern there that if Trump were elected, well, we're out of a job. Um, and I think there is some truth to that. I, I can't imagine um, his uh, presidency and then um, his cabinet members and so on and so forth and the uh, there's a Republican House and so forth, that they would be particularly supportive of cultural resources and providing the funding to national parks to, you know, keep protecting cultural resources or providing the necessary funding to provide compliance to these major um, contracts with pipelines and so on and so forth. So I, th- I think there could be some real concern that there'd be a complete lack of care for protecting and preserving and continuing with compliance uh, for protecting cultural resources if things were to go in a really horrible direction. Well, yeah, I mean, maintaining things like the museums where we store these things or the research centers where we look at these things or the universities that are willing to do the research and put out the the analysis, that funding's going to dry up because he's already made it clear not on archaeology specifically, mm-hmm. but he's already made his stance on education and these kind of fields. He disdains them. So why would he send money their, their way to keep those up? And things like such a Section 106 and like a lot of states have that protect historical resources, you know, why would he attempt to defend those laws when they stand in the way of quote unquote progress or someone's ability to build something? You know, so yeah, he probably would set up an administration that would be more than happy to either work with the loopholes or just get rid of these archaeological barriers to people wanting to build and expand. Yeah. I'm exhausted. I mean, <laughs> this is all conjecture. You know? Right, right, right. This is just a bit, this is just a big what if. Exactly. And, and like Emily stated earlier, we, we don't know what Clinton's position on any of this is and... I, I personally, and Chelsea, you get you can argue with me, because, um, or you can agree with me. Um, <laughs> but I think I don't think it's a coincidence that we don't have a Clinton position on this. One, I don't think archaeology hits politicians' radar unless you know they they're uh, representing a, an area that has a lot of archaeological resources in it. So I don't think Clinton 
is even aware that archaeology is like a thing. I mean, I, she knows what it is, but I don't think she realizes that it's a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And Clinton is, I love Hillary Clinton. I really do. But Clinton is very much a watch and see politician. And her MO is, is that she likes to keep an eye on the public opinion on whatever's happening. Um, like she, I think, she, uh, Emily, you were saying you couldn't see, if she, you couldn't see that she had a position on DAPL. Yes. And I, mean, I think. She does and she doesn't. I mean, it's yeah. almost as if just saying, oh, that's not good. But it's like, yeah. for whom? For, for which person? For which yeah. people? And I think, yeah, so- I mean, that's classic Clinton. And that's because she's waiting to see which side is where the public is going to go. And I, I know some people think that's not great. I personally don't have an issue with it because to me, that's her waiting to see what the population wants. And normally, if, if she sticks with how she's done things in the past, uh, once she understands which way the public wants to go, she'll make it happen. So I actually think that Hillary Clinton's ability to stop and wait and, and listen is one of her greatest strengths because right. your job as the president of the United States is to represent the people of the United States exactly. and having a politician who is actually interested in listening to the people of, of the United States is, um, you know, really wonderful and, and really incredible. Um, you know, and, and I also have to say Hillary Clinton's, uh, ability, um, and, management and leadership style of, of listening to public opinion, um, has, has probably also done her a large degree of good in, in getting her to where she is today. I mean, she started out in politics in the, in the nineties and, uh, it doesn't seem like it's that far ago, but even things, things weren't easy for women then. They're not easy for, for women now. Uh, and to, to stick your neck out on, on something, um, that may not get passed or, um, that the public is, is going to be very against are things that we see male politicians do fairly regularly, but it's, it's not exceptional. And when you exist in a, in a system and in a world where you are, uh, part of the, the minority to do such a thing invites criticism and invites the oh so hated phrase of, well, that's why women shouldn't be here. Um, which is, obviously incorrect uh and it's a huge case of of double standards um yeah but i i think her life has taught her that holding her tongue is is the right way to go and that discretion is the better part of of valor i'm not saying that if she feels really passionately about something that she won't go after it i mean i think her stances on uh universal are not universal yeah on on the health care bill um she's always been an op- a proponent for that um, and, and children's rights children's rights and her uh, stances on education haven't really changed. She's always been a proponent for cheap and or free education up to a point. And she hasn't bent on any of those. And these are policies that are very near and dear to her. And I mean, if you follow her political career, you can see how she manages to get that stuff through, even though pretty much none of that is actually popular uh, in the public. Um, I know we all like to play lip service to it, but when it comes down to actually putting the laws together and getting that stuff passed, there's a lot of fight back, a lot of kickback to those kind of laws. And she has stood her ground on those things. But for the most part, when it comes to things like DPL, uh, DP, uh, whatever, when it comes to things like the pipeline, you know, she's a wait and see politician. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. She's also willing to change her mind. I don't think that's a bad thing either. That's an excellent quality, being able to be moderate, be able to try to see both sides. That's if we all had the wrong. same opinions that we had as human beings 20 years ago, right. I would be worried for all of us. Right? <laughs> well, How about you guys? But I was kind of stupid 20 years ago, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies, do you have any closing thoughts on our discussion? Oh, man, um... Can I say don't vote Trump? <laughs> sure. Why <Yes>. not? <laughs> I guess. I mean, always a thing that says the APN does not right. endorse exactly. specific political political candidates. Right. No. Um I mean that is that is a, a personal uh viewpoint. Obviously. Um I I think Clinton deserves a whole heck of a lot more credit than she gets. Um 
I think Trump is a scary option for a lot of reasons, one of which being the the potential archaeological site destruction, although the potential uh, human uh, human casualties are are also clearly very great significance. Um, you know, but remember it and and learn from it and man, it would be great if as a society we could do whatever we can to make sure that this kind of circus doesn't happen again. Give it four, give it four years. <laughs> Hope Watch. springs eternal. No, I mean, give it four years and we'll be watching this all over again. Well, really, three years, because, you know, they gotta start early. I'm very cynical about political cycles because I have watched the last... Well, I remember both of the George W. Bush elections because I was unfortunately old enough to be aware of that the time. Um, and we are just getting progressively worse candidates from one side of the aisle than we are from the other side of the aisle. And it's, I think this particular election is, you know, kind of the gathering of all of that. Um, you know, we've, we've We've seen fairly qualified candidates being presented from one particular side of the aisle. And I think we will continue to see qualified candidates coming from that side of the aisle. And the other just is like throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks and whatever sticks. That's what they try to run with. And it just didn't work for them this year. Um, maybe we'll get lucky. They don't know what they want anymore. I, I don't think they do. And if we get if we get really, really lucky, you know, maybe in the next four to eight years, we will have some viable third parties. And that would be phenomenal. Uh, but until then, you know, you just my final thought here is freaking pay attention. You know, every four years is not a fresh start. It's it's a it's an accumulation of all the crap that's happened from pretty much Lincoln all the way forward. You know, just pay attention. That's all I'm asking. Pay attention and vote. Um, don't vote ignorant. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's my soapbox. Uh, for me, what it boils down to is just thoughtful, uh, what you're voting for, whom you're voting for. I'm personally completely and utterly exhausted by the rhetoric used throughout this election, the just cruelty towards women and the, the language being used that's as we've said, being normalized. And I think people just need to be cognizant of what they're voting for and realize that there are huge ramifications for society if you choose a person who thinks it's okay to assault a woman, that thinks it's okay to be cruel towards other races, towards all people, towards everyone besides people like him. And... I mean, as this is an archaeological show, be cognizant. If you're an archaeologist or you care about archaeology, realize that the actions by politicians can greatly harm archaeological sites. So for me, what it boils down to, really think through your vote. Um, I, I know we said final comments, but I, I did have one other thing that, uh, listening to ladies talk, um, I think it is important to, to stress that your your vote does matter. Um I know that there are a lot of people who are tempted um, to to lodge a protest vote because they don't like one candidate or the other, or they don't like either candidate. Um, and while I sympathize with feelings of, of dislike um, and disgust on, on some parts, um, I don't want to see America end up in the situation that, that Britain is in now with Brexit, where you had people who went and vote to leave the EU not fully comprehending what they were voting for and immediately regretting casting casting the vote. And I know there are a lot of people who are disenfranchised with with the system as it stands today. Um, but your vote does matter. So don't throw it away and don't vote for somebody because you don't like the other person when the reality of of the life that um, that, that person may uh, may create in the in the US is something that you also don't want. Uh, because there, there is no surety. No one thought Brexit was going to happen. It did. Nobody thinks, um, or many of the polls that I have seen don't think Trump is going to happen. Um, but, it but don't bank too much on that. Okay. And now you've incredibly good point. <laughs> so now that I've stood on my second soapbox, <laughs> that's all right. Sometimes you need to. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me this evening, and happy voting. Mm-hmm.
We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for the show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.